Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, and this is part two of episode one. Originally, it was one long episode, about an hour and a half long. Looking back on it, I felt it was a little bit too long for the audience for our very first episode, so we are splitting it into two episodes. So, without further ado, here is part two of episode one. Enjoy. There was a rule in Rome that no Roman army could enter within this line around the city called the Pomerian. No Roman citizen could enter under arms. Uh, all the soldiers, you know, they would ha- the, even a, a general couldn't enter the city as a general. He had to relinquish command and become a citizen again before he could enter the city. And that had been that way since the founding of Rome for hundreds of years. In all these hundreds of years, nobody had broken that rule. Maybe close to 400 years, nobody had broken that rule. And Sola sits down there, and he hears, and he, he gets this news. That a messenger shows up and says that Sola is to stand down, re- relinquish command immediately, and give up his army to Marius. But remember, I said that these soldiers are now less soldiers of Rome and more soldiers of their individual general, right? So maybe in the past this would have worked, but the troops get very angry at this. And they grab this messenger, and, and they kill him on the spot. And they tell Sola that they they don't want another commander. They want him. And Sola says, you know what? Marius says I have to relinquish command of my army. The Senate's voted on it. But I have this army here, and they're willing to follow me. So I don't really have to give up this army. And so he takes his army and starts marching on Rome. Unheard of. There was, was like, like, nobody had even considered doing it before. Even Marius was shocked at this. It would be... So it's, it seems almost stupid that they wouldn't think that this could happen. But think about it today. If I mean, from the U.S. point of view, since you, know, you and I are, are from the U.S., if Washington or the president said to uh, relinquish your command and put somebody else in charge, nobody would expect that general to, to take his troops and march on Washington, D.C. and overthrow the government. You know, it just doesn't happen. It's just it, it would be unheard of, even if it is possible. So Sola takes his army and he marched up to Rome and the Senate sending him messengers saying, hey, stop this. You're going a little too far. What are you doing? And Sola refuses to stop until I guess Marius raises it kind of a, a ragtag rabble of forces to try and resist Sola. Some gladiators, maybe some slaves, some veterans. Sola comes in with a, a trained veteran army and, and just eviscerates him. And Marius is barely able to escape from the city and has this kind of harrowing journey out of Italy and eventually escapes Sola's death squads and, and escapes to Africa where he has many veterans settled there. And so now Sola has marched on Rome with an army for the first time ever. This is unheard of. And Yeah, it's a, a question. How did Maurice even raise his army? I mean, I can't imagine. Uh, so he has no position of power. He's the first man of Rome, though. It still seems tough that to just go through the countryside and, and raise an army from uh, villagers and slaves or uh, gladiators. Oh, he wasn't even in the countryside. He just grabbed a bunch of like urban poor and, and just like bully boys. And I don't even know why he would even do this because he had to know that he, they had no shot. But I guess he, fig- he figured that if Silva comes in, he, it, this might get taken out on his supporters. So he has to at least try and defend his supporters. Now, before this... Before Sola was in the south of Italy, there were tensions between him and Marius even before then. And a bunch of Marian supporters went crazy one day 
and started beating on Sola's supporters. And Sola was in fear of his life and had to run from them and actually had to hide in Marius's house uh, in order to get away from them, which was a huge embarrassment while he was consul. So that had added to the bad blood between them, too. And, yeah, I don't know exactly who these guys Marius Reyes were. Like, some were gladiators that he hired. He still had an enormous amount of wealth. He was also, like, the people's hero is the other thing I forgot to mention about him. He was considered to have come from, you know, relatively low stock and low birth. He had worked his way through his own merit through the military. And the common people of Rome loved him, worshipped him. He was one of theirs. So I'm sure there were a lot of people willing to fight for him. And a lot of these, you got to also think that a lot of these people, the urban poor, they had had relatives or they themselves had served in his armies and he had elevated them and he had given them land and they owed a lot to him. And he was still had an immense amount of prestige, what the Romans called dignitas or gravitas. So he could still get things done. And he, he had allies who, who did have legitimate commands within the government at this time. You know, a tribune of the plebs that was on his side and other allies. But... It's obviously it's not going to be much against Sola and his actual troops, but maybe they thought that Sola would was bluffing that he would stop right at the Pomerium, the line around Rome, and wouldn't cross it. But Sola walked right across it. And this uh, Pomerium, that's how do they? Is this a, a geographical line, or is this like some kind of river or anything, or just no? A it's just certain it's, distance around Rome. A certain distance around Rome, it got moved a few times early on during the city's life so that it could expand, but then eventually it kind of solidified at one location. And I think it was something to do with the fact that Jupiter, the kind of head god of, of their religion, so in Greek mythology, it's equivalent of Zeus, Jupiter blessed the area within the Pomerium and protected them from disaster. And to bring weapons into Rome was to kind of incur his wrath. Now, it, it was a lot of religion and superstition, but it, it served the real purpose of preventing military takeovers. The Romans didn't even have a police force. There were no weapons allowed. I mean, did they have knives? Of course. You know, they had butchers and, and things like that. And in various times during public votings, there would be fights between, like, big gangs with clubs. People would sneak in swords sometimes. But the military never came into Rome. That was unheard of, at least during the time of the Republic. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that they don't even have a police force shows that there it must have really been tradition for such a long time to not have any kind of uh, military or, or weapons in general in the in the town. Otherwise, it'd be it'd be tough to enforce. Yeah, it'd be tough to control the population if that wasn't the case uh, without any police force. Yeah, no, definitely. And that, that's the way a lot of things in Rome were. A lot of their, the, the customs that they followed weren't actually laws. They were just unwritten customs that were unthinkable to break. Until somebody breaks them, suddenly, then suddenly people say, well, then I can do it too, you know? So they're extremely effective until suddenly they're not, these customs, these unspoken or, or unwritten laws. And, and this is a big one that Sola breaks. First person to ever do it. Romans worship people like there's the general Cincinnatus who was way back in the beginning of Rome. He was a farmer that, I mean, they say he was a farmer, but I'm sure he was like a, like a farmer or he owned farms, but he was probably somebody in the government as well. Somebody of high station. 
and they had some kind of war to fight against one of their neighbors, and they made him dictator of Rome, which was an actual position that they could create in times of emergency. They'd give you six months of complete power over life and death of everybody in Rome, and no repercussions could be pursued against you afterwards for what you did as dictator. And this guy, Cincinnatus, took on this position, fought the war. At the end of the six months or at the end of the, the time that he needed to defeat the enemy, he laid down his command peacefully and went back to his farm rather than seizing control of the city. And that's the kind of people that the Romans worshipped, you know, people that were selflessly serving the state and would not abuse these rules and, you know, would set these precedents. And that's actually where the, the American city Cincinnati comes from, from his name, Cincinnatus, because Cincinnati, as I understand, has seven hills. And so does uh, the city of Rome. So that's where they got Cincinnati from, or Cincinnati. And then George Washington, founder or one of the founders of the U.S., actually modeled himself after Cincinnati. And that's why he wanted to defeat the British and then relinquish command willingly and become, a, uh, in his time, a modern-day Cincinnati. But those are the kind of unspoken customs that they worshipped and looked up to and, and everybody was expected to obey. At any point did they try to put these, these unspoken walls into, or unspoken traditions into all? They did have some written laws. I'm not sure which ones were and which ones weren't, but many of them were just unspoken customs that, and, and, and they, they, were, they weren't just customs, they were intertwined with religion too. It was, it, it was to see, bringing an army to Rome wasn't just breaking the customs of your people, it was supposed to be incurring the wrath of the gods, and Sola knew that he could incur the wrath of Jupiter by doing this, but Sola felt that he had, he had, he had a goddess on his side that he felt that was even more powerful and would, would protect him from this. I believe it was the, the goddess Fortuna, or, or goddess of fortune, and he believed that she was guiding him and setting his trajectory for his life. And Sola was definitely, he was loved by his soldiers. They felt that he was a, a commander that would go out of his way to protect them and to do them a favor. But he was, he was an interesting personality, too. I want to kind of flesh that out. He was known to be extremely charming, extremely genial, funny, fun guy to be around. And then suddenly, like that, he could just switch and be incredibly violent and angry and have people killed right in front of him. And he, he had an explosive temper and was a terrifying guy to people. A really fascinating personality. I would love to do a podcast on him, too. One of the more fascinating personalities I've ever, ever read about. But he takes his command, and because we won't get to Caesar eventually here, he takes his command, he goes to the east, he starts defeating Mithridates. In the meantime, while he's in the east, while he's in Greece, and he, he sacks Athens, and he, he cuts down the, I think, olive groves that Aristotle taught in just to give the finger to the Greeks. <laughs> And in the meantime, Marius comes back from Africa, raises a troop of, they said, like slaves and veterans alike, and marches on the city of Rome. So here, it hadn't happened once in like 400-some years. And now it's happened twice in the span of, I don't know, five years? Now Marius has marched on Rome. And he's brought his supporters, and they just start butchering people in the street. They're, they're, they're grabbing Sola supporters out of their homes and just butchering them. It's just a, it's a bloodbath in the city of Rome. It's, it's, it's now, horrible. You, you describe Sola as kind of a bit of a psychopath, someone who, who kills people in front of him, but it sounds like now Marius is the one who's going into Rome and not just for his army, but using it on uh, people and butchering them. So 
why is it that Solo gets described as someone who who doesn't have a lot of empathy or can't control his anger, and Marius does not? It's a good question. I think much of Marius's career, he was the people's hero, and it wasn't until later in life at this time, and he's maybe in like his late 70s at this point, and he's still leading armies and, and still wants to be in charge, which is, I, I find that crazy. He can't give it up. But I think for much of his life, he was the people's hero. He did things within the rules relatively. I mean, he had all those consulships, but the people were voting for him and everybody was okay with it because they figured it was better to, you know, break the precedent and have and, and have him defeat the Germans than keep sending, you know, inept aristocrats to, to lose all their soldiers. But it wasn't until the very end that he kind of went crazy like this. It's, it's almost like a, a complete turnaround and there's some that have theorized that maybe he had kind of early dementia at this point. And, but whatever, he, if he had anything wrong with his mind, he certainly seems like he was very capable of organizing people and commanding armies still. And so they start butchering Solo's supporters, killing them left and right. He teams up with a guy named Cinna. And Cinna has command of uh, some Roman troops. I think he was maybe the consul at the time too, Cinna. And eventually, Cinna, even though he's his ally, he lets this go on for a few days. He's kind of bloodletting. And eventually he says, enough's enough. And he has his troops put a stop and start fighting Marius's, you know, freedman, slave, and gladiator, and, and veteran army. These are all the people that Romans would look down upon, too, as people that didn't respect the Roman instru- institutions and traditions. I mean, little wonder that they didn't consider the Romans enslave them. <laughs> But this was, you know, when they when they said that Marius had an army of slaves, it was supposed it was like an accusation. It was a blight on his character. They felt that he was turning these foreign peoples that Rome had conquered and enslaved, and unleashing them on Roman citizens. These are these are people. Some of these people from from other lands within within the peninsula, or out of the uh, some other some other area. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on, on, on Roman slavery. It's definitely different than the slavery in the southern U.S. I mean, there's definitely similarities, too, but there's many differences. But many of these people, the way the Romans would get the slaves would, would be that they would defeat some foreign peoples in war and then enslave all their women and children and some of the men as well. And then they would grow up as slaves within Roman society some sometimes people sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. There's stories of learned men in Greece that knew philosophy and letters and numbers who would sell themselves into slavery because they knew that they could make far more money and live a better life teaching some rich Roman families kids than they ever could as a philosopher in Greece because the family, you know, if the kids grew up, would still pay for that guy to live a good life and and have a nice house in Rome and he wouldn't be maltreated, be treated pretty well. So there's a variety of different types of slaves in Rome. Most of them weren't treated that well, but... uh, This brings up an interesting point that I'm thinking about is that so Marius, when he convinced these slaves, did he really convince them or did he convince their owners to uh, let them fight with him? I'm I'm wondering if... uh, It's a good question. They're more property than, you know, having their own... Or if, if if he convinced them, not the owners, then he's... He's also guilty of theft then. <laughs> I, I, the, the reading I get is more that he was just raising rabbles. I don't think he's really getting anybody's permission. 
yeah. just saying fight with me and you'll have your freedom which it's funny because all the ancient sources portray this at least in the way i've read on that it's like this evil thing but you think about it from a modern standard he was taking people that were enslaved and he was raising them up and giving them their freedom and letting them have revenge on the people that had enslaved them maybe it doesn't sound so bad when you think about it you know <laughs> right yeah but eventually the, the guy Cinna, who's the consul at the time, and Marius' ally puts an end to it. He says, we're not, we're not killing any more Roman citizens. This is crazy. Marius, who for years had said that he had seen a fortune teller one time who had told him that he would have seven consulships, constantly telling everybody this, and he had had six so far, has himself and, and Cinna elected as consuls. So now he's finally gained his seventh consulship. And then there's, there's stories in, in some sources, but not others, about Marius having these kind of night terrors at this point. He begins to like kind of lose his mind and have tons of nightmares. And he's this is, the, this is the fearless guy that faced down the Germans with no fear that fought in many wars and fought in the front lines. And he once gave a speech in the Senate where he said, you know, I have no illustrious ancestors to point to. I have no great parentage to prove that i am you know a, a, a good roman it was all i have are, are the scars of my body from fighting for rome all of them in front meaning that he had never been scarred in the back from running away he'd always faced his enemies so this was a fearless guy and suddenly he's got night terrors and and he just he, he's like a mess and and you can imagine how this affected his supporters their fearless leaders not looking so good and then he dies short and not even I mean shortly into his consulship, into a seventh consulship. And again, people think it was maybe early onset dementia, and that's why he's behaving this way. So now all of his supporters are sitting there saying, Oh my god, we just butchered all of Sola, who is an excellent military commander's troops, and now we don't even have our military commander at our disposal anymore. We're in trouble. And Sola hears about this. He's not happy. He, he quickly patches up a peace treaty with Mithridates. That's the Pontus king that he had been defeating. He, he does a quick treaty with him, and he returns back to Rome. But Cinna has had a number, maybe like five years at this point, to prepare for Sola's returning, but doesn't seem to have done much. It's very odd. He doesn't really seem to have done much to prepare for this return that he knew must have been coming. And now Sola is returning with an army of veteran soldiers that are fanatically loyal to him. He, mar he lands in southern Italy, coming back from Greece. And this is when young Pompey comes on the scene, who's a guy we'll talk about more in depth later. But he's a, he's a young, really, he's, he's an Italian. He's not even a Roman. And he raises his own personal army and joins Sola's army as does another man named Marcus Crassus, who will also become a main character that we'll talk about. He raises a, a smaller army, but also joins Sola. And Sola marches on the city again. And Cinna, ra or Cinna or his supporters had raised some Italian allies to help defend Rome from Sola. And, or at least had allied with them. And Sola ends up slaughtering them all right at the gate into the city of Rome and eventually gets into the city. And when he gets into the city, he starts giving a speech to the senators. And the senators become distracted from his speech because they're hearing these screams, like blood-curdling screams of pain. And they start whispering to each other, and they're not sure what's going on. And Sola gets angry at them. And he says, pay attention. 
He goes, some criminals are receiving their just due. Pay no mind to it. And in the meantime, his soldiers, all the prisoners that they had captured of these Italians, they had them in, I don't know the exact name for it. I, I got to look it up. But it, it's, it's a, one of the Roman government buildings that was used for voting and, and things of, of public nature you know, prestigious building, and he, and he was using it as like a pen to corral these Italians and having his soldiers just butcher them within earshot of the senators as he gives a speech. And these are the kind of stories I got tell, told about Solo that he's just a, a, an absolute psychopath, a scary guy. And so he comes in the city and, and his soldiers start killing people. He's got like secret police going out and just nabbing people and they d- disappear and never come back until even his supporters get nervous. And they say... Would you mind at least, if you're not going to tell us, or would you mind at least putting up a list of who will be killed and who won't be killed? And so the thing said, he goes, all right, I can do that. The next day, they post up what they call prescription lists in the forum. And the forum was the main kind of square of Rome where public business was done and where you know gov- government officials met. And the list has everybody's name on it. and Or not everybody's name on it, but everybody that Solo once killed's names on it. And it, what it means is that anybody in Rome can then kill this person at will and bring their head to Sola and receive payment for it. This is, this is barbaric and terrifying to the Romans. You know, the people are just – and, they're, and people, they're not all enemies of Rome is the thing either. Many of them are just people that are rich, that are neutral or have no dog in the fight. And Sola just needs money to support his troops and money to support his new regime. So he puts her name on the list. There's a story of a guy who comes out and, and, and he reads his name on the list. And he goes, he goes, my God, or my gods, or whatever he says, uh, some ex- kind of exclamation. Then he goes, my Alban estate has killed me. And that would be like a, a nice area of the Italian countryside. He's basically saying that his riches and his, his big mansion has, has killed him. And then he's, he's quickly butchered by people around him on the spot, or at least he tried to run and, and they called him or, or something of that nature. So a lot of people are being killed simply because they have money and Sola needs their money. And this goes on for a while and, and thousands of people are killed. And this so is... At, at this point, where, where exactly is Marius? It seems like a... Uh, well, he is, he, is he fighting? Oh he, oh, he is dead at this point. All right, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Try to make that clear. Shortly into his consulship, when he started having all these night terrors, he, he then he dies. Okay. Yeah. So he's dead, and they were. They, that's kind of the thing. They had killed all these Solon, these supporters of Sola, and then lost their champion Marius shortly afterwards. So he must have been sitting there, you know, thinking, "Oh my God, we're screwed now." Right. Yeah. So Sola's in charge. He makes himself dictator. He's killing people. Now enter young Julius Caesar. He's, like I said, born in 100 BC. He's a young man. His father dies while putting on his shoes when Caesar's around 16 or 17. They don't say too much about his father, but then Caesar becomes kind of the the man of the household, which is not just a figure of speech in Rome. It was called the paterfamilias, and they were the kind of supreme rulers of their family. A lot was expected of them, and a lot was given to them. And Caesar had been offered the daughter of Cinna, who had been Marius' ally, and he had been consul like four times. He'd been offered the daughter of Cinna as a marriage alliance. And so he had been previously engaged to another girl when he was younger, when he was a child. His parents did it for him. 
So he broke off that engagement and he got engaged to or married Cinna's daughter. Her name is Cornelia. And then Cinna also made him what you would call the Flamandialis, which is a, a priesthood in Rome. And the Flamandialis is, is an interesting priesthood because had it gone down this way and, and had it been allowed to continue this way, history would be radically different. I have a, a passage here which says about what the Flamandialis couldn't do, and there's a lot of limitations. So here it says, Amongst many other things, the Flamandialis was not allowed to take an oath to pass more than three nights away from the city or to see a corpse, an army on campaign, or anyone working on a festival day. In addition, he could not ride a horse. He could not have a knot anywhere within his house or even on his clothing and could not be presented with, with a table without food since he was never to appear to be in want. Furthermore, he could only be shaved or have his hair cut by a slave using a bronze knife. And the cut hair, along with other things such as nail clippings, had to be buried in a secret place. <laughs> <laughs> the Flamen wore a special hat called the Apex, which appears to have been made from fur, had a point on top and flaps over the ears. These restrictions made a normal senatorial career impossible, end quote. And if you, if you, can, you can Google Flamen Dialis, too, and see what these guys wore. It looks absurd. I mean, it's like a, a furry hat with flaps over the ears and then got like a candlestick on your head. I mean, it looks ridiculous. But, yeah, he, he couldn't have left the city for more than three days, couldn't have r rode horses, wasn't allowed to see armies on campaign, wasn't allowed to see, I don't know, what else? He wasn't allowed to see corpses, I said. Oh, he wasn't allowed to ride a horse. So you can imagine it would not have been possible for him to have a normal you know, military life, normal Roman senatorial life at this point. So, but Sola comes in, Sola says, all right, and he did this to a lot of people. He said, all right, you're going to divorce your wife, Cornelia, because she's the daughter of my enemy, and I'm going to find a better match for you and have you married to one of my female relatives. And everybody uniformly said yes to this because, I mean, probably the best case scenario for many of them, you know, like they, that they're going to die. And, you know, marriage in Rome was not so much a love match. It was a political alliance. So it wasn't like they were, I mean, it wasn't like they had some deep, I mean, there were some couples that loved each other, but many of them were just a political alliance. And he gets to Caesar and Caesar's all of 16 years old. And this fearsome, ruthless, bloody dictator Sola, who just marched on Rome, was killing people every day, says, you're going to divorce your wife and you're not going to be Flamin Dialis anymore. Or at least he said you're not gonna you're gonna divorce your wife. I guess at this point, and Caesar says to him, "No, I'm not doing that." And Sola probably couldn't believe it, you know. And so he puts Caesar's name on one of his prescription lists, and Caesar has to flee the city of Rome, and he's hiding out at 16 years old in different barns, in different you know back cottages in the countryside got to move every single night to somebody new and find somebody else to take him in to avoid Sulla's death squads during this process he catches malaria and he's deathly sick and Sulla's death squads catch up to him and they find him and in this malaria weakened state at 16 years old on the run with you know no family around him Caesar has to face these death squads and he manages to convince them to take a bribe from him and let him go which you can imagine, I mean, it sounds easy to say, oh, yeah, yeah, he bribed them and they let him go. But I'm sure it wasn't just like, here, take this money, because they could have just taken the money and killed him. He had to say something convincing enough to get them to release him 
and take the money and, and not kill him. And he manages to do this. So he shows from an early age that he does not like being bullied. If Solo try to tell him what to do, divorce your wife, and he seems to be happy with his wife. And Caesar stands up to him and says, no, you're not going to tell me what to do, even though it was near suicidal to do that. I mean, it's crazy. And he ends up surviving it and trusting his own luck. And then he's got some influential relatives who then you know, intervene on his behalf and, and tell Sola, you know, please let him go. He, he really hasn't done anything wrong. He's just a stupid kid. He, he's not worth your time. So eventually, after all this lobbying, Sola says, and I have the quote here, quote, Very well then, you win. Take him. But never forget that the man whom you want me to spare will one day prove the ruin of the party of optimates, which you and I have so long defended. There are many Mariuses in this fellow Caesar. And that's the famous line that Sulla said when he was 16. There are many Mariuses in this fellow Caesar. Wow. And so had he met him in person? I mean, in order to... Yes, he had. He had, okay. So Caesar came before Sulla, and he's described as being loosely belted, which is what they describe a lot of the Roman youth that were maybe like chic and in style back uh, in those days because they'd have a belt around their toga and these kind of young hip guys would wear their belts very loosely but he shows up before the dictator like this <laughs> which is uh, again a calculated radical move to show that i should back up sola represents the conservatives he represents the people that did not want rome to change even though it's 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 kind of absurd because he himself changed so much of Rome. He marched on Rome himself. He broke all the rules, but he was himself a conservative. And Caesar showing up to, to meet with Sola like this or to appear before him is kind of uh, making a, a stance that, hey, I'm a populare. I uh, you know represent the people and not the conservative establishment. And so Sola saw him and felt that you know there were many Mariuses in, in his fellow Caesar and predicted that he would tear down everything that they had worked to create. So Caesar, after that, he flees and he goes east to join the military because he figured Rome still wasn't safe for him with Sola, you know, being kind of the wild guy that he is. And I should say, and back up a little bit, that Caesar, though he has this illustrious name and he's a patrician, he was born into relatively low circumstances. He, he grew up in this neighborhood called the Sabura, and that was infamous for its prostitution, had a lot of immigrants to Rome in, in the area. It was considered lower class compared to, to where most of the senatorial families would be. Even though he had this patrician name and he was, you know, old-time Roman family, they were in the slums. This is not a good area. So he, he didn't start out with a lot of money. He started out, you know, with a good name, and, and that's about it. And uh, at this point, even at 16, Sola has confiscated his dowry, has forced him into exile from Rome, and you know he almost dies at this point. But on a positive note for Caesar, because of all this incident, he, Sola revokes the Flamen Dialis from him, and he, he's not going to be that priest anymore. So now he's free to pursue a normal military life of, of, that a Roman aristocrat would pursue. So Sola is the one who ends up taking that position away from him? Yeah. yeah if it was not for Sola... It, if he had not said no to Sola's demand to divorce Cornelia 
or had Sola not marched on Rome, then he would be stuck in that position. Because he, I guess he hadn't actually, he had been given the position, but he hadn't actually been maybe invested with the powers yet because maybe he wasn't quite old enough. Okay. I have a description of Sola I want to read for the audience here. Let me just pull that up real quick. It's fascinating. This author of a book that I'm consulting, it's called Caesar, Life of a Colossus by Adrian Goldsworthy. And Goldsworthy says of Caesar, Caesar was the only man to refuse and to persist in that refusal in spite of threats and offers of favors, quite possibly including marriage link, a marriage link to the dictator's family. And that's he's refusing to divorce his wife, he's saying. Given recent events, this was remarkable boldness, most of all for a youth who could easily be removed in any way had connections with the opposition. Why he did this is unknown. The marriage to Cornelia does appear to have been happy one, a happy one, but it may just as easily have been innate stubbornness or pride. So kind of distinguishes himself as a pretty remarkable person even early on. Any questions on what I've said so far as I pull up this passage? Uh Oh, so that was a description of Caesar. Because before you were saying, uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm looking so I guess I, I kind of stumbled across that one as I looked. Oh, I got it, got it. Yeah, it, it always confused me hearing about like uh, Caesar, Sola. They come from these uh, these aristocratic families, but yet they don't have any power or money. But I guess in a way it makes sense in that if you compare it to modern times, if you have some kind of um, like a Bush or Clinton grandchild. They would be given some kind of advantage that they have the name. People would at least look at them, see if they can do anything. But then from there, if they don't have any talent or if they don't have any capability, then people won't look again. Yeah, exactly like that. And I think, I think especially living in the U.S., it's harder to imagine that somebody would be given so much credit for their name because that's usually not the way things are done here. And, and money means a lot more here. Their money was a tool, but money wasn't the – it was a means. It wasn't the ends in itself, and the ends was power. And money would fuel your political career, but money is not you know, what brought prestige. Money is not what brought honor and glory. So you know, they had been a powerful family, but they, had, you know, they hadn't won the consulship in many years. They were not in a place where Caesar thought they should be, thought they should be you know, winning many more honors than they were, thought they should be more respected than they were. And he felt it was his duty to get them back on track and to raise the family status to what it should be and what it had fallen from. But he had to do so. You know, he had good connections, but now he's on the wrong side of the guy that rules Rome. And Sola, when he came in, he, he remodeled the government to make it much more conservative, much more limiting on the – so there's kind of two parties in Rome. And please do not make the mistake of – confusing them with republicans and democrats because they're not at all the same they're very different but there were the populares that stood for the people they spoke the kind of latin that the people spoke they would fight for you know legislation for the people the conservatives would criticize and say it was just really uh you know rabble rousing they were just using the mob to boost their own uh popularity and seize control of the government Conservatives felt it was their duty to guard against that, and the conservatives went by a group called they went they were called the Optimates, which meant like the best men or the bony. Uh, those are uh, kind of synonyms. So the Optimates and the bony are, are one group. They're just different names for the same group, kind of like you call them Republicans or GOP, even though I said not to confuse them with each other. But many of these people in these groups, the Populars and the Optimates, 
they're not political parties. They're more identity politics. You know, people that tend to have maybe a bit more flair and, and like to hang out among the common people and, you know, rabble rouse, they're going to be a populare. And, and people that feel that they're more conservative or, they're fam- or, you know, they're more about the traditional Roman values would be optimates. But it wasn't so strict and people would cross over and everybody was intermarried with each other. So you, maybe your cousin was on the opposite side. So, you know, things were constantly shifting. So when you describe it there, it almost does kind of seem similar to the modern conservative and liberal parties. So what are the differences then? So if you have any, yeah. They didn't have platforms of set objectives, a lot of uh, both these parties. All politics was personal for the Romans. And, you know, they're all just trying to do what would get them personally ahead. And so it wasn't usually principle that led people to these groups and the groups weren't united by an official party they didn't have party meetings or anything like that they were kind of taking the route they best thought would lead them to power and that you know their family would approve of i don't know that i can give a good explanation off the top of my head as to why it's different than republicans and democrats but maybe as we begin to explain this you know and kind of flesh out the entire story of caesar it'll become clear in some ways they're similar you know they're, they're, the popularities are reformers the optimates do not want any changes to the government. They think Rome is perfect the way it was when it was founded, and any changes to it are just corrupting it. So yeah, there are definitely similarities between you know conservatives and liberals today, but many differences. Yeah, yeah. I, I seriously say it's just very convenient to think of them as the exact same, and so it's important to, even if there are similarities, to not fall in the trap that they are completely the same. Exactly. Yeah. If you fall into that trap, I mean, it's going to be easy to start thinking of them that way. And they're really not. And, and you'll see as time goes on, we'll talk about the different points and different things that they each support and how often people flip sides. And you'll see that it, it's not the same as Republicans, Democrats. They're not official parties. They're more just their political traditions. And Sola's goal after marching on Rome was to eradicate the popular tradition. He didn't want any more people. So here's a way to put it. The populares took their power from support of the people. The optimates took their power from support of the establishment. And Sola did not want pop- populares anymore. And he wanted to eradicate that tradition. So one of the biggest tools of the populares was a position called the tribune, tribune of the plebs. They were somebody that could support, the, that was put in place to support the plebs and stop patricians originally from passing legislation that would be anti-plebeian. And later on in, in the city's lifespan, these tribunes began to be used to be very obstructive to government because they had something called a veto. And they could veto anything, any bill that was put out by anybody, they could veto it. Even if they had all the votes in the world, all they got to do is, I interpose my veto. And it stops proceedings. And Sola found this was obstructive. He thought this was just made for rabble-rousing. And he wanted to get rid of it. So what he did was he said that that position still exists. But anybody who becomes a tribune of the pleb is then barred from holding any other office. So it would eliminate any ambitious men from taking that position. Yeah, yeah Sola is an interesting character. He seems to have a lot of contradictions. Like he, he hangs out with the, the artists and the, the actors in the slums. In other words, the people, but then he's part of the establishment political party and is uh, enacting things that will work against those same people, it seems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
he, he, he was a contradiction because he, he would essentially say to people, do what I say, not what I do. You know, he, he breaks every rule in the book. He marches on Rome. He makes himself dictator. But he tells everybody, oh, you need to follow the, the rules set down by, you know, the, the old time uh, Romans. You know, you need to follow all the conservative principles. When he himself is, is following none of them in order to implement those conservative principles. There's a little story I found here on him about Sola. And it says, quote, it had always been a temporary post, meaning a dictator, laid down after six months. But Sola discarded these restrictions and set no time limit to his office. He was named Dictator Legibus Faciendus et Rei Publicae Constitunde, uh, which in my Latin pronunciation is probably atrocious. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it at all. But eventually, essentially what that means is dictator to make laws and reconstitute the state and by a vote in a popular assembly. His office was unprecedented. So again, this is an unprecedented thing. This is like something that a conservative wouldn't do as was the violence he used to crush any opposition. On one occasion, he casually ordered the execution of his own senior officer in the forum because the man persisted in standing for the consulship in defiance of the dictator's orders. And so, so now that, that title is Dictatorship for Reconstitution or something of the, of the state? Is that yeah, what it dictator was? Dictator to make laws and reconstitute the state. Reconstitute. You know, that sounds like it could go on indefinitely because uh, who's to say when the state's been reconstituted? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, I mean, he, he doesn't – as clever as he was, he does not seem to understand that he is setting a precedent that you can march on Rome and as long as you have the might on your side, you have the right on your side. And I don't know how he could miss that fact. In fact, Caesar would later in his life say about Sola that Sola didn't know his political ABCs. <laughs> Or something about – maybe not ABCs, but whatever the equivalent of, of the Latin version of that was. And so before you said – he said, do as I say, not as I do, or the other way around? No, I mean he didn't actually say that, but it's kind of what he was oh, saying to people. A, like here's what – okay. he would tell them, like, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do that. And expect nobody to look at what he had, was actually doing and decide, well, I'm going to ignore what he says and just do what he does, you know? You right, thought they would yeah. just say, do what he says. I'm still yeah. looking for the passage about Sola. I wish I could find it. Oh, well, I guess we'll have to just talk about it next time. I can bring it up. I think that's yeah, where I'm sure we're going to do a whole podcast on Sola. You could, you could. But I think we're going to end it there. You know, we're leaving off with Caesar going east, fleeing from Rome. You know, he's okay with the state now. His relatives intervened and at much persuasion got Caesar off the execution list. And even allowed him to pursue a normal career, but Caesar decided it's best to leave Rome, and he's gone and, and joined the legions in the east, in the area of like Turkey and the Greek islands. So we'll pick up next time from there, and we'll keep on going with the life of Caesar. Thank you for listening to March of History. Mm-hmm.